Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Dr. Kasia Tomasiewicz. It's been six months since Elon Musk took over Twitter. Frequent users will tell you that anecdotally, the functionality of the site has gone down the toilet. But Musk insists that every change he's made, from charging for blue check marks to amplifying the visibility of his own tweets, has made the platform better. So how is it really going for Twitter? Was it $44 billion well spent? And where to next for the site that, like it or loathe it, is a vital source for global news, political communications and cute pictures of cats? With me to unpack this is Luke Bailey, head of digital at the iPaper and formerly an editor at BuzzFeed UK. Hi, Luke. Hi, how's it going? How are you today? I am great, thank you. Okay, so Luke, if you could sum up Musk's six months in charge in the shortest way possible... What would you say? Uh, I mean, it's trash fire. <laughs> it's, it, it, I was hoping yeah. you'd say that. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah, it, it feels like it could have both gone a lot worse, but simultaneously it has gone really very badly. I mean, you can kind of split it into two halves, I think. Half of it is kind of what he's done internally in the company in terms of like, the actual organizational structure and what he's done with the people there. And half of it is what he's done to the actual like front end of the site. Mm. Yeah, in terms of kind of the people around it, he has fired the vast majority of people who've ever worked there. Everyone kind of predicted initially that the site was going to fall apart immediately. And it kind of didn't, which is, I think, interesting and testament to potentially there is kind of overhiring in it. And I think... We've seen that in other big tech companies recently, that they've kind of hired way too many people, particularly mm. during the pandemic, and then have had to either find work for them or lay them off, which is the more common solution to it. So there's definitely kind of, he was, interesting, he was kind of correct in the idea that there were some inefficiencies there. But the way he did it was cruel and unusual, I think, would be a fair way to summarize it. Um, we did some reporting at, at the Eye. Um, Chris Stoker-Walker spoke to various people and reported that at one point they... Basically, Elon Musk asked managers to rank their best employees in, uh, in like highlight the best employees for a, uh, a pay bump, a bonus. Uh, instead of giving them a pay bump or a bonus, he then fired the managers and promoted the employees to be the new managers. Wow, which is callous. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty deranged way to do it. Like tech companies do stuff like this. They there's a really common thing called um, rank and yank, um, which a lot of tech companies do, and a lot of other companies as well actually, um, where you basically put your ten employees in order of who performs best and fire the bottom two. Elon Musk's way of doing it is just deeply inefficient because, and this is sort of what it, it gets to with Elon Musk is that he thinks he can fix an awful lot of these things without really having any idea around it because what you do if you do the kind of firing managers and promoting the employees to be the new managers is you end up with employees who are really good at coding or or uh, user user management or whatever it might be now instead spending their time managing which is right. not what they're good at yeah different skills yeah exactly and and it's very much kind of in line with what he's done with the rest of the company everyone who's tried to stay um a lot of people have kind of been very vocal about you know being like we're we're proud of this. We're going to do this. Esther Crawford became a one of his kind of like most trusted lieutenants in the early days. Uh, she famously like posted a photo of her herself like sleeping in the office and yeah, saying like this the thing. Uh, she was let go in the later, later round of layoffs. So it's one of these things where really there is there is very much no one is safe and there's not a huge number of people there anymore, which has fortunately reduced their cost quite a lot. Yeah, I've seen, um, well, I've listened to interviews where it's described what Twitter was like before Elon Musk. And it almost seems like this idyllic place where Silicon Valley people go to like, like retirement, basically. Not that they're retired, but do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know, massage stations and stuff like that. No matter what you think of that workplace culture, right, the kind of Silicon Valley workplace culture, it just does seem quite like a pronounced shift and change 
with someone putting up a picture of themselves sleeping in a sleeping bag in the office? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a huge shift. A lot of tech companies do that thing where they have free food, where they have, you know, Google has cars on its campus that takes people around and all that sort of stuff. Twitter had a lot of that, but I think it also had the most pronounced kind of um, mission in terms of like being a progressive organization. But that very much kind of represented itself. That's how it was internally. They were, you know, they made real conscious strides around diversity, around equality and equity and, and making sure that they were considering all of these problems. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that Elon Musk has gone in and kind of blown away. And as a result, you know, there's just a lot fewer people there. They're a lot less careful around kind of user safety and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And then the kind of the, the, the fun bits of it also go. Um, most of the <laughs> bits of furniture and stuff were sold. Um, he held a large auction for them. Uh, so you could go and buy, <laughs> you could buy armchairs and wow. uh, I think he was at one point he was, he was selling a bunch of Twitter logos, like basically neon signs that go up around the place. He's he was, just putting everything up for sale, basically. Yeah, just put everything up for sale was just like, we're selling this pod that people work in. We're selling this, <laughs> selling this desk. Like, yeah. And the, and, Please, someone take it. <laughs> yeah, but the, the irony is they can't, they're trying to reduce their real estate costs. And that's proving really hard as well because no one's, you know, we're in a major economic downturn. No one wants a large expense office in mm. San Francisco or in uh, London even. Um, so they're really struggling to kind of reduce those costs as well because it was a big organization. It's now a lot smaller. It's only not worth $44 billion anymore, even if it ever was. I suspect probably not. So yeah, it's, it's not, a, doesn't sound like a fun place to work anymore. So that's kind of how people would experience it working there. What's it like to actually use the site now? Yeah, well, this is the second half of what I mentioned about around really the, the, the actual site itself. The functionality is like less. It is less reliable. It loads a little bit slower. It's a little bit jankier, but it's not kind of the overall collapse that everyone predicted. Really, the kind of big changes to the site are around the actual user experience. Now, what he also needs basically in order to turn, to make Twitter work is he needs like significantly more revenue because bluntly Twitter never really, even at its peak, was really kind of bringing in a lot of, a lot of money. It's, it's quite a weird site. It's never had the user base of the size of Facebook or of Instagram or of YouTube or any of the ones that have like figured out a way to be like roughly successful. Instead, it's kind of been this small niche interest. And as a result, they've really struggled to monetize it. It's basically held a really massive outsized, like it has significantly more impact on, for example, culture than say Facebook does. No one, no one really talks about like, oh, I saw this thing on Facebook because that's just, it's not where any one thing happens. It happens on Twitter because broadly speaking, people with influence are there. That's kind of the magic of Twitter. You can go and talk to The Rock or Chrissy Teigen or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, whoever. They're all there somewhere, which is which is kind of like the magic of it. But at the same time, it's never really brought enough people onto the site to, to like turn a profit. So now he's trying to turn a profit and figure out how to do it. His number one thing was Twitter Blue. He wanted everyone to subscribe to Twitter Blue, pay $8 a month and get some benefits. The problem is that the reason why you would pay for Twitter Blue is to be verified. Verification, historically, was quite a useful thing. It made the platform basically more usable because you could tell accounts were real, uh, accounts were like the actual celebrity you were talking to, which was useful. And then an awful lot of journalists got it as well, which was helpful kind of making news more reliable. You could see, okay, this person who is tweeting this thing from this site is verified, they work for an organization, that's good. The problem now is that he's removed all of those, so it's like a much less reliable site. But as a result, he's also removed the benefit of being verified. It no longer looks good to be verified because, well, actually, he's kind of re had to re-verify people because it now is not cool. Against their will. Yeah, exactly. He's been re-verifying <laughs> people against their will. He's been re-verifying um, dead people as well. 
which is quite bad. He um, <laughs> he verified Jamal Khashoggi, which considering that Saudi wow. Arabia are, are investors in Twitter wow. is a pretty messed up consideration because, yeah. There's some there's some pretty there's some pretty wild and unpleasant stuff going on. But fundamentally what he's done is made the site less usable because right. now you can't see who's real and who's not. Mm-hmm. But what he's also done is with Twitter Blue, you get algorithmic promotion. Now, so as a result, a bunch of people who have bought Twitter Blue are people who have previously not been successful on the platform. They haven't posted good tweets and they don't get good engagement on their tweets. That means that when he's promoting them algorithmically, you're seeing a lot more tweets from people who are bad at tweeting. Right. Like the reason why you want to see posts from Chrissy Teigen is that she's funny or that she's engaging or whatever how you feel about her, she's successful at using the platform. Instead, we're now seeing a bunch of tweets from people who are making bad tweets and they're uninteresting. So in terms of what you actually see on the site, it's now significantly worse. Then alongside that, you're asking, for example, journalists to be verified and get extra reach. But the problem is, is extra reach on Twitter is often a bad thing because it makes your mentions unusable. You really want to tweet to your kind of like circle of people that you know, which means you can have like normal conversations. If anyone's had experience of a big tweet knows as soon as that tweet goes out of their circle, suddenly a bunch of people misinterpret it, decontextualize it and start yelling at you. And it's awful. So you've got a situation where Elon Musk is asking people to pay in order to see worse tweets and have people yell at them. And no one wants to do that. I think like one of my favorite things about Twitter, and actually I think one of the things that when this takeover happened, I was most sad about is that Twitter has been used by so many people to develop communities. And more recently, it felt like a lot of the tweets from my friends from that online community have kind of disappeared. Is that anecdotal that these glitches, that they exist? I mean, so the, the, now the feed is divided into two. We have the For You tab, which is the basically the algorithmic recommended one, and the Following tab, which is an algorithmic. Theoretically, if you go to the Following tab, you should still be seeing kind of the same posts from the same people you'd expect. The problem is, is that some people have stopped tweeting entirely because they, they're no longer on the platform, they don't care about it. Some people are just tweeting a lot less, so you're kind of seeing less from them. But on the For You tab, you're less likely to see your tweets from your friends, assuming that they're not paying for Verified Blue. And there's also just some weird stuff with the algorithm that, broadly speaking, I personally can't figure out, uh, and I don't think anyone else really has either. You'll see stuff like, okay, so one particular thing that's really annoying me is there is a podcast that I'm not going to name that is a a, a small comedy podcast. Um, It's got like three guys on it, uh, like making jokes. I don't know, it's got, it's probably... 15,000 listens a, a, a month or an episode or something. So it's not huge. I don't follow anyone from it, nor do I know anyone who's involved with it. For some reason, I get clips from this podcast in my feed daily. They think you're that guy. Well, I don't know, <laughs> but I can't figure it out. And it's so, but it's, but it's like, there are loads of podcasts just like that of three comedy guys having like a chat on a podcast. It's basically all podcasts. It's three guys having a chat and trying to be funny. Why Why is it that one? Why is it not any one of the many other ones? And I can't figure out why that is. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason behind it. It just sort of gets stuck with you. Mm. There's certainly some stuff, because they did open source the algorithm, and there were some interesting bits and pieces in there. And one thing it, it did suggest is that you're kind of categorized into a group of users. So, for example, if you always do tweet about football, you're categorized into a football group. If you always tweet about AI, you're categorized into an AI group. And those are the sorts of tweets that you see. But they just seem to be slightly broken. And where they put people means that it becomes quite confusing. So, for example, if you are tweeting and you have 
twin interests of football and AI, and you talk to some football people and you talk to some AI people, what you're expecting is to see tweets from both of them. Instead, it's kind of going, no, no, you're in only one of these. And so suddenly, rather than getting this variation of feeds and all the things you're interested in, you're just kind of getting the same stuff going round and round. You're like, I have seen all of this before, which is why it's, yeah, it's just very, very odd. It's kind of interesting because he wanted, one of his mission statements was to make it more quote unquote democratic. Yeah. <laughs> when he kind of took it on. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't think he's got even close to that. What he's, what he's done is he, he believed, and I think a lot of other people believed, that there was kind of a secret left-wing progressive cabal running Twitter. It turns out that there was a progressive left-wing cabal running Twitter and they were trying pretty hard as all of his revelations in the Twitter files um, when he kind of opened up the basically opened up the email archive of everyone at the company to some investigative journalists. Um, well, I'm using quotes around investigative journalists. You can't see that, but I'm using quotes around it. When he opened those up, it kind of revealed that, yeah, they were left-wing and progressive, but they were trying really, really hard to like remain balanced. And they clearly made mistakes, but they also kind of made mistakes in both directions. And they broadly were considering the various the implications of, of their actions quite deeply. What, in fact, who was running Twitter really were trying to do was they were trying to make money from it. And if you're trying to make money from it, you need to create a place that's safe, that doesn't get a huge amount of hate speech because people will leave quickly. You're trying to create a place where people can connect with the people they want to connect with. And you're trying to create a place where people see the tweets they're most likely to engage with a lot of the time. What Elon Musk has done is slowly realized why all the decisions that Twitter have previously made were made. So there's one thing that he's come up with, which is what he's called freedom of speech, not freedom of reach. So the idea is you're allowed to say anything you want on the platform, but if it's considered hate speech, if it's considered misinformation or whatever, it gets downranked. You can tweet it, but no one sees it. Now, that's pretty much exactly what Twitter was doing before. And he has done the whole thing. He spent $44 billion. He's fired everyone. He's thrown everything up in the air. He's pulled the thing apart to eventually look at this decision and go, oh, I see why they did this now. <laughs> it's been a very expensive learning curve. It's been a super expensive learning curve, yeah. So in all this time, I mean, it's been six months. What are some of the most like, I mean, it just feels like you can't move for a new scandal or something new happening, which is just another reason why it's just going to the dogs. What moment stands out to you as being one which is particularly, I guess, like particularly evocative of the Muskian, the Muskian <laughs> taking charge? I mean, yeah, I've mentioned it kind of, I mentioned it a bit before, but the unverifying and re-verifying over the weekend was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it was just a truly great day to be on Twitter because he's been threatening, he's been threatening forever to unverify people, mm -hmm. which, broadly speaking, good. Unverify everyone, fine. The problem is, is once he does that, he then devalues the blue tick and he then has to figure out how to redo it. So he starts re-verifying people at random uh, he re-verifies like people who are like mean to him so that it looks like they've played for Twitter Blue which is one of the like biggest self-owns you can do you've made a product so bad that you're forcing people to take it for free and they don't want it I know like Stephen King and like yeah. William Shatner leave William Shatner alone I wouldn't know William Shatner's blocked me <laughs> <laughs> Luke, you've got to leave William Shatler alone as well I, then. <laughs> well, he blocked everyone at BuzzFeed in like 2015 oh, for, no. for, for some perceived slight. And so as a result, we've been blocked from feet by him for years. William, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the major moment, though, is that he ended up getting essentially into a posting war with Drill. Uh, oh, wow. Drill is, uh, if you don't know who Drill is, he is a, an old school weird Twitter user and widely acknowledged to be the best poster. Mm. Like he's very, he's just very funny. He has this very weird, angry persona. Elon Musk ends up verifying Drill against his will, claiming that Drill has paid for a paid blue tick. And Drill is, yeah, he's like the the icon of Twitter and everyone loves him and, as a, and everyone hates Elon Musk, which means that 
the world's worst poster, Elon Musk, ends up in a war with the world's best poster and loses and then is forced to do this bizarre thing where he yeah, has to then re-verify everyone with more than a million followers and some other people at random that he wants to he just wants to verify or because he's trying to annoy them. And then also, my favorite bit of that though, is that he then doesn't re-verify Jack Dorsey which is deeply, deeply funny. Sorry, can you just explain who Jack Dorsey is? Jack Dorsey, the original founder of Twitter, uh, <laughs> who was on the board when it was sold to Elon Musk and was genuinely quite positive about it initially. He thought that there was a chance to, there was an opportunity to to make it into the thing that he always wanted it to be. Uh, but since it became clear that that was not a thing that Elon Musk shared, uh, he is now working on his own Twitter thing called uh, Nostra, which is a federated it's another platform, essentially. But yeah, as a result of basically Elon Musk being just deeply, deeply petty, um, yeah, he refuses to verify Jack Dorsey. It's like a tragic comedy for the internet age, isn't yeah. it? It's so embarrassing. It's incredible because you, he can ask so many people to just be like, should I do this? And everyone will give him the same answer of why not? And he'll do it anyway and then discover it's a bad thing and then undo it or do something else to make it worse or do something else to mitigate the bad effects of the dumb thing he's done the previous week, which, yeah, it's fun to watch. I guess it's also that kind of chaotic approach as head of Tesla and whatever, like that chaotic approach to using the social media platform is one of the reasons why there's such a loss of faith in him through brands. Because obviously advertising is a massive revenue generating industry, right? Especially for yeah. like something like Twitter. So if you aren't going to get sponsored by these people because your whole brand is so unstable, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, he's hugely alienated in advertisers, so he's definitely lost a chunk of revenue there, which is, I believe, the amount of money that he's making from Twitter Blue has not yet made up the amount of money he's lost from the ad revenue. So it's, <laughs> it's very much he's still in a worse position than he was. I think his reputation has taken a pretty massive hit over it. Um, realistically, Teslas are, you know, there's a lot of challenges around Tesla in the industry. It makes an awful lot of money from basically selling carbon credits to other companies because it's very green. So it allows other companies to continue polluting by selling the carbon credits that it gets. And that's how it makes a significant like chunk of its revenue. Not all of it, but a significant chunk of its revenue. But at the same time, he has created an electric car and pushed forward the kind of electric car industry. You see it much more now. You see them around. The infrastructure is growing up around them. So that's kind of like a good thing. But it's because he has to build a physical thing. Mm. Same with SpaceX. Like he's building a physical thing and he can hire engineers and say, let's do this thing. Social media platforms are slightly different because it's not really about code. Obviously, you need the code to be good. You need the site to run fast, all those sorts of bits and pieces. But the actual decisions you're making are much more social, sociological. They're much more political. Mm. And that is something that he's really not very good at. And as a result, yeah, he's probably kind of tanked a lot of the reputation that he's built up with around SpaceX and Tesla because he's not a, you know, esoteric Iron Man business genius anymore. He's now, like, clearly a bit of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> who nevertheless has an awful lot of money. So um, just to wrap this up, I noticed that, well, actually about two or three months in, there were just so many tweets by people being like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm joining. This is my Instagram. This is my Mastodon, which is another platform, which yeah. hopefully you can explain to me in the future. And I noticed a lot of people, you know, saying that they were going to leave. But I also noticed that both you and I are still on the platform clutching on to the like dying embers. And I kind of wondered how many people have actually left the platform. Is it noticeable? Is it really crumbling before our eyes? Well, a portion of people have definitely left or are posting a lot less because it's a less good platform. The major benefit that Elon Musk has, which is much harder to kill, regardless of how dumb his decisions might be, is that it has really powerful network effects. You're there because everyone you know is there. There will be a moment at which suddenly then that's not the case. 
Um, where people end up, don't know. Maybe it's one app. Maybe it's just kind of attention just goes to TikTok, which is kind of where the attention is right now. Or maybe there is another platform where actually everyone goes and decides, yeah, this is actually the one. And suddenly there's a, a better benefit to a network effect for being on Mastodon or Blue Sky or Substack Notes or wherever it might be. You kind of say, okay, here's the place I want to be. But right now, yeah, everyone's kind of clinging on because their networks are clinging on. Mm. When that crumbles... Which, I mean, it's like many things. It happens slowly and then suddenly. It will be a thing where, you know, we'll have been watching it for 12 months and then suddenly over the course of a week, you'll notice, wait, hang on, this is mm. not good anymore. There's no one here that I want to talk to, so I'm, I'm, I'm out. One final question. Luke? Yeah. If you're a betting man, how long do you think it has got left? I mean, it kind of depends what your loss condition is. Like What he's trying to do is trying to turn... Twitter's now no longer Twitter, it's now X Corp, which owns Twitter. And what Elon Musk wants to do is kind of turn it into a, what he calls the everything app. He's going to pump a load of AI into it and make it the thing that can talk to everyone. So when you say, okay, are people going to continue to use something like Twitter? Probably for quite a long time. That's probably, it's, it's not going to be like, okay, we shut the website down, we're done. Something like Twitter will exist for a long time. Will it be recognised from what it is right now? Probably not by the end of the year. Luke? Thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing that you're supporting independent media. I'm Dr Kasia Tomashevich. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Kasia Tomashevich. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.